So this was an interesting interaction, to say the least. Uh, quite a bit of push and pull going on. If I'm completely honest, I don't know if Eddie was just right about everything and I should have just shut up, or if it was in fact good for me to push back all the times that I pushed back. I guess time will tell, or one of you will tell me on Twitter or on Facebook. But regardless, uh, Dr. Eddie Glaude was very gracious throughout, even when I kept pushing him on various points. Um, I was also sick, so that's another reason I don't know if I pushed too hard or if it was appropriate. I don't know. You be the judge. But some of the really hard questions that we touched on this conversation, which, of course, as you'll remember, do not have easy answers. What's going on with all the college campus controversy these days? Do Americans at a subconscious core lean toward the bias that white lives are more important than colored lives? How do we speak to those with whom we share different foundational values? And is there a danger in equivocating between problems on the left and on the right? In other words, should we be more careful when we say, well, the left and the right both do this? Uh, Professor Glaude thinks we have something to worry about there. All that having been said, enjoy the episode. I'm here with Dr. Eddie Glaude, who I met at the AAR conference, American Association of Religion. He went to Princeton and Temple University. He's got a master's, he's got a PhD, two masters actually, master's from Temple and a master's from Princeton and a PhD in religion from Princeton. You teach now at Princeton and you are now the president of AAR, which I pick up as like a yearly, it changes yearly. So at this conference, you were sworn in, I guess you called sworn in, your inauguration as president of AAR. And, um, you have written many books and deal a lot with racism in America, but also the intersection of religion and politics and social questions. And man, I am honored to have you here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything I kind of missed out there? Oh, that was perfect. It's my pleasure to be here with you, Doc. All right. Thank you. So I actually want to start by telling the story of how we met at AAR. Not really how we met, but how I really became introduced to you. So there was this panel that was like a forum that was called, you know, very last minute because the conference was like a week or a week and a half after Trump got elected. And so someone called this forum of like, what do we do now that Trump got elected? I don't remember the name of it, but that was essentially the conceit of the class. And... About 15 minutes in, this college student, a woman of color, gets up and says, hey, guys, I know that there are these really hard conversations you have to have in your classes, but don't have those conversations at the expense of your students of color. We're really afraid right now. It's a hard time for us. And I heard that and I was like, oh, crap. That's I, I felt like this is exactly where we should not be going it's kind of time to buckle up. And there was like a few more comments like that. And, and there was sort of some palpable hysteria in the room for about 10 minutes. And then a few minutes later, you responded to her and a couple other people because you were one of three panelists uh, for the forum. And you said, you know, I want to respond to you, miss. And I just want to say, here's what I tell my students at Princeton, presumably. Do your work. 
do your work because power will never wait until you feel comfortable and safe. You have to get your stuff done. In, in fact, it's, it's more that you were kind of saying it's the opposite of that. It's not that you need to be safe in order to do your work. It's that you have to do your work in order to be safe. Mm-hmm. And so there's sort of a logical order switch there. And I just got stars and hearts in my eyes and felt a, a deep sense of relief. <laughs> and uh, that kind of got me thinking that the black civil rights movement is maybe like a good antidote to the problem of sort of safe space, trigger warning, snowflake college culture, which I suppose I should just start by saying I'm assuming for the sake of this discussion that there is a problem on college campuses of this kind of ultra progressiveness that many people see as something more like entitlement, immaturity, militancy. You know, a lot of comedians have stopped playing colleges because audience members will get offended and boo them during their shows. So I guess I should start by saying, do you agree with that? Is there is there an issue here with the current state of political and social dialogue on college campuses in America? Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that there's a problem. Okay. I think, I think there are moments uh, where the hyper-partisanship of the country evidences itself yeah, uh, on yeah. college campuses. And, and the thing is, is that campuses, you know, uh, colleges and universities are these extraordinary uh, spaces that allow for a wide range of people to, to forge a life together. And it, they're contrived environments, but it's all based upon an, a, a basic assumption. And that basic assumption is that everyone is open to having, having their minds changed, right? They're, everyone is open to kind of growing through an encounter with difference, with ideas, right? Whether, you know, you come from a small country town in in the Midwest or in the South or even on the West Coast, you find yourself on a college campus encountering Aristotle or Keats or Chinua Achebe or Toni Morrison, and those, those encounters shake your assumptions, right? And if you challenge the kind of underlying respect that enables those sorts of encounters, then the whole place breaks down. Right. Then the whole place breaks down. So so I think students who are often forced to experience these institutions on terms that are sometimes hostile to to who they take themselves to be uh, have to figure out how to how to live here. So and, and, and sometimes that takes the form of trigger warning. Sometimes that takes the form of letting their fellows know that you can't touch my hair, letting people know that, you know, here at Princeton, Prospect Street is is defined by white male preppy culture, uh, and that if you're working class, if you're black, if you're LGBTQI, if you that sometimes those spaces aren't welcoming, and you have to let folk know that. And and if you're committed to the underlying principles of what these institutions are supposed to be, then you have to work on it. But sometimes it can go uh, too far; it can can become censorious, right? And and you don't want that to happen. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying the media might pick up on some of these most egregious moments. Right. But actually that could be a sign of health that those moments are even happening as long as you assume that they're at the far end of the bell curve. Right. But we do want a place where all these ideologies come and clash and where people expect to be challenged and expect to kind of, I mean, we're also talking about like 19 year olds, right? So right. 
There, I mean, I was just a dick when I was 19. I was like <laughs> such an idiot. So, I mean, I can't get too judgmental about a bunch of 19-year-olds trying to find their voice. When I was 19, I came home from college and told my mom to sell her jewelry. Right. Be- because <laughs> she's like a, a bourgeois, you know, middle-class white woman. Zimbabwe diamonds, right? These are, these are South African diamonds you got. Yeah, I just seen Blood Diamond or whatever it was. So, <laughs> But you're saying, yeah, the, like, sure, it does go too far. Sometimes, yeah. It does sometimes go too far. And of course, you know, we don't want a situation where like a comedian can't come because that should be humor should be kind of where we can poke at things and kind of see what's working or whatever. But that's not, in your view, the norm. Right. And, you know, when we talk about free speech, we have to understand that free speech takes place within the context of a set of agreed upon norms. And if a certain way of talking fundamentally calls into question who I take myself to be. So, you know, it's like reading 1829 David Walker's Appeal, which is a response to Thomas Jefferson's notes. And Jefferson is is reflecting in the notes whether or not black folk are actually human. And he says, we can only decide that question by putting them on the operating table. Well, if you answer that claim by saying, fuck you, excuse my language, yeah, right? That seems to me reasonable, right? It seems to me reasonable. And in the name of free speech, I'm supposed to take that claim uh, seriously? That my humanity is to be subject to operations, you know, exploration on the operation table. Hell no. So I think part of sometimes what happens is that people hide behind the notion of free speech, some very hateful, harmful commitments that actually undermine the basic assumptions that form the environment that I live in and that you live in, right? So, and what the media does is it, it takes those, those moments on, on the margins, right, at least in some institutions, and then they read it through the prism of the hyperpartisanship of the country and claim it as another example of political correctness, claim it as another example of people trying to discipline and police what other people think, as opposed to thinking about it, well, there's one reason why we never will have on, our, on the ballot whether or not we can be a democracy or not. The reason why we will never have on the ballot whether or not we can vote ourselves out of the democracy is that democracy is supposedly right? The underlying norm that guides how we interact with each other. Yeah, it's presupposed. And so you can't call that into question. So if you call into question a certain kind of decorum, a certain kind of respect for people's humanity in the context of the academy, we collapse in what we do. Well, so that makes sense to me. But if I could push back a little bit. Sure. You have some extreme examples that feel almost as egregious to many listeners or hearers as Thomas Jefferson's like, you know, the only way we could tell if black people are human is put them on the operating table. I mean, in Canada, like, I don't know too many of the details of this, but supposedly they're, they're trying to push through these words and new pronouns for people to use in, in official settings. And, you know, there's Zer instead of him or her and, and, and whatnot. But then there's like worm self, fairy self, people who identify not as human beings, but identify as animals. And you could kind of imagine someone employing the exact same thing. Like, if you tell me I got to call you worm self and I say, F*** you, it's so patently absurd that I, I love what you're saying. I want to apply it in both directions, right? And say there has to be some sort of norm here, uh, some middle of the bell curve that everybody can get behind uh, that doesn't devolve into insanity, and that does promote you know, mutual respect and conversation. The thing that we got to keep in view at all times is, you know, is that we want a society that's predicated upon non-domination, which means we want to stand in right relation with our fellows. That's going to take work to flesh out. And 
The one thing that I firmly believe is that universities and colleges are places that are designed to force us not to be provincial, to kind of get us to step outside of our parochialisms, our provincialities, uh, and to reach for a cosmopolitan way of being in the world. And the moment we kind of hunker down in those spaces, uh, in some ways we undermine the very reason why those spaces exist. It sounds like you're saying non-domination is the, like, foundational, I don't know, moral aspect of, of To my what? mind, to me, right. And that's, that's just in America or that's in the university? I think it should apply to all institutions as best as possible. It should be applied to the country. It should apply to the globe. And, you know, there's a formulation that the political theorist Philip Pettit uses, you know, freedom is justice, justice is freedom. And the way in which he understands freedom is as non-domination, right? It's not that you're free to do whatever the hell you want to do without constraint or interference. It's not non-interference, it's non-domination. And that requires us to work some things out, right? It doesn't require kind of proliferation of categories in which one can declare that, you know, you can't infringe upon my sense of, it's not, it's not that, it's something much more fundamental. And that's just hard work. It's just hard work to kind of build a just and free society. So, and I think there's no better place to do that work than universities. But I think oftentimes people who don't live in our environments, uh, people who don't work in these sorts of environments uh, tend to think that it's just a space where liberals and progressives are running around this is where all the flower children of the 60s landed and they're just skipping, you know, singing hippie songs or something. When in fact, my experience of these spaces, they're not all liberal, they're not all progressive. These are some very, very interesting and sometimes very, very conservative spaces that we have to navigate. So it's just, it's just what we do. Okay, so I'm, I'm really interested these days in Jonathan Haidt and his moral foundations theory. And so I'm going to allow that to color this follow-up question. So you're talking about uh, non-domination, which in the height language would be mostly drawing on the liberty oppression uh, moral foundation, which is one of his six that he gives. Now, I'm wondering how far you would apply this in your own mind. So let's say that I am a cake baker. You know, let's just go with a, a recent example. And let's say that I have some moral beliefs about, you know, the sanctity of the human body or the sanctity of, of marriage. I have some beliefs about state authority versus federal authority and which of those authorities are legitimate and which of those are illegitimate. And I want to not be dominated, right, in my business decisions for my small business that supports my family. Does non-domination apply there? I mean, should should the person whose moral foundations do not rely so much on domination or non-domination? Are they extended the same sort of, you know what I mean? Yeah, I I think, you know, I I want to, again, distinguish between non-domination and non-interference. Okay. Uh, I think those are two different things. Uh, Standing in right relation to one's fellows in some ways means that a person has the ability to become Right, the, the human being that they aspire to be under the conditions of the agreed-upon norms that define the society within which they live. And that pursuit is not kind of dictated by someone who holds power over you or reserve power over you. You know, an example would be like um, Nora in Ibsen's play The Dollhouse. By every measure, it looks as if Nora lives a life that's free, right? But in some ways, her life is contingent upon Torvel, right? The way in which he affords her the space to be who she is. And if he decided to act otherwise, 
right? She couldn't be, right, free. Part of what I'm saying here is not just so much that, you know, because there are social norms, there are other goods that get in the way of the cake baker who holds certain positions that may very well go against agreed upon norms that define the society with which we live. Mm. And to insist that I want to live this way, right? To give a crude and, and it doesn't quite follow an example. I believe some pipe, somebody might hold the view that a child that's 12 years old uh, is capable of, of, cons- of consenting sexually. Right. And to have norms to suggest that that's not true and then to sanction people for, for behaving in such a way as if it were true, right, isn't an example of domination, right? So non-domination exists within a kind of set of social norms, a society that, that we find ourselves, right, a set of agreed-upon background agreements that, that orient us to one another. That can be contested, but, but, you know, it's not as if you're just out here in the state of nature just doing whatever the hell you want to do. That's not the objective, right? That's not what we're talking about. It's, it's more of a, a Republican idea that's driving how I'm thinking here. But but that's that's to get us too far afield. <laughs> or that's to go exactly where I want to go. Um, <laughs> I like this stuff. So the norms then really are kind of the norms are the agreed upon rules of the game. And it, it seems like they're based on rights. Right. I mean, that's they can be based upon rights. They can be based upon social traditions. It could be, you know, let's put it like this. You know, we, we have we're playing the game of football and I'm a Steelers fan. So we just won, but we're playing the game of football and then somebody decides that they're going to dribble, right? We're playing American football and somebody decides, right, that they're going to suddenly import the rules of soccer. Well, they can't, that's not the way the game is played, right? But then there are ways in which within the context of the game that there could be extensions, right? There could be different ways in which they could move the, you know, the extra point back five yards. They could, they can do something within the bounds of the game uh, but there's something that is still American football, right? And to say that I want to be able to put the football on the ground and kick it with my feet all over the, uh, and to n- not allow me to do so is to somehow to infringe upon my rights. Is, no, that's not interference. That's not non-domination, right? That's, that's, that's something else. Uh, so there's some social norms in which we exist, some goods that define how you and I, by virtue of the fact that we're born in this place, goods that animate what we take to be the good life, what we take to be flourishing, right? We can have some argument over what that is, right? We can do some work in that regard. But I think the idea that, that you shouldn't be moved about, that you shouldn't be this, this, this fellow or this person whose life chances are dictated in toto by some other power, right? That seems to me fundamentally wrong. And that really does kind of call back to mind the civil rights movement, because especially, you know, and you could argue, of course, to what extent this is true today. It's certainly still true to some extent. But for sure, during Jim Crow and during sharecropping and and during slavery uh, is the most obvious example. I mean, African-American lives, the possibilities were entirely limited by the rules of the game at that point. Not entirely, but very much so limited. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, almost entirely limited. You right. have a, you have a handful of people. You have your Frederick Douglasses and and whatnot. But I mean, basically, and you know, now the some progress has been made there. 
But is that what the conversation is still about in terms of is Black Lives Matter addressing the same thing that the 60s civil rights movement was addressing? And actually, a, a meta question, is it even worth sort of trying to compare the plights of people groups over time? Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's important for us to kind of offer historical context for experiences of oppression. Sure. In the context of the United States, we do know that one of the central contradictions has been and continues to be uh, the reality of, of white supremacy, of racism that has in so many ways overdetermined our democracy. You know, the political scientist Judith Sklar said we were this unique political formation uh, in the sense that America perhaps wasn't a democracy until the passage of the Civil Rights, uh, Civil War Amendments. Interesting. Wasn't truly a democracy until the passage of the Civil War Amendments. Some might even argue wasn't truly a democracy until the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act of, of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. And so this notion of race and then behind, underneath that, the idea that, that you know, we're a settler colonial state, that we're based upon the kind of occupation, the stealing of land from Native peoples, and how that evidences itself throughout our history, to then think about what does it mean for uh, young people in the context of 2016 and 2017, arguing that police forces are disproportionately exercising violence towards particular bodies and linking that exercise of violence to a history of violence directed to those folks seems to me uh, reasonable. Uh, not only reasonable, seems to me to be a right, the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I guess what I, what I meant by is it worth comparing the plights was like on the whole, is it, does it even matter if we say, well, blacks are better off now than they used to be? It kind of, it seems like that doesn't really matter. You just, if there's a problem, you talk about the problem. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's Obama's fond of saying that we're better off now, right? Yeah, no. I think that's 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 just simply a kind of rhetorical ploy to figure out how we're going to pat ourselves on the back today. Oh, yeah. As opposed to confronting the problem at hand, you know? What I do know is that it's very, very difficult for Americans to confront the problems right in front of them without kind of falling back on a set of claims that the real fault lies with the people who are actually catching the most hell. And it's their burden to transform the circumstances of the country. So. Well, and doesn't that go both ways? I mean, I think that I've noticed in my own mind as like someone on the left, which, by the way, <laughs> the way that I'm kind of giving you devil's advocate hell here is maybe <laughs> but I, I am left leaning. I'm just kind of doing my job. But um, <laughs> no, but I, I do that. I blame opioid addicts in Appalachia for their own problems, you know, just like a Trump voter blames inner city Chicago black boys for their own problems. I mean, we all do it, right? So it, it, that one goes both ways. Yeah, no, we, I mean, we all do it and I don't think we should. I think we need to have a robust conception of the good. If we're committed to a society based on non-domination, that extends not just simply to black people, it extends to LGBTQI people, folks, it, it extends to working people, it extends to women, who happen to be in all of those categories. It extends, yeah. it extends to children. It extends to the most vulnerable among us. Right? What does it mean to have a society in which people, as my, my favorite philosopher would say, John Dewey, people can not only dream dreams, but have the ability to make those dreams a reality, right? But oftentimes we can't get to the structural questions that reproduce the circumstances uh, that define people's lives and in some ways narrow the choices available to people. 
and narrow those choices in such a way that what I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose poverty or I'm going to make this quick buck on the street. I mean, if folks are making these choices and, and I'm not trying to say they're not being, they ought not to be held responsible for making bad choices. But if you only have like degrees of bad choices <laughs> in front of you and we can't get to why that's the case because we're only focusing on the responsibility of the individual actor and not the environment in which she acts, then we find ourselves in a problem, right? So I keep thinking about this constantly uh, these days where it's so hard, it's so frustrating to not be able to get past the sloganeering of both sides of any particular issue. I had uh, Dr. Drew Hart on recently, and, and we were talking about systemic racism towards African-Americans. And I just want to, like, if I'm speaking to a conservative, I just want to say, look, here are statistics. Like, can we leave all the rhetoric aside? Can we just solve this clearly defined problem? And then I want to say to the left, look, here are statistics about opioid epidemics in former factory towns. And here are the issues that need changing with the way that pharmaceuticals are doled out and, and, you know, yada, yada, yada. I just want to like get past all the sloganeering, but it seems like it's human nature to not want to go to those details, to not want to look at the data and to just want to say, I'm in this group. This group is right. Every time I log on to Twitter, I see a bunch of comedians and actresses and filmmakers and politicians and pundits repeating to me what I already believe. I see, mm. a, I see a bunch of uh, news articles, and, and that's true for everybody, because if you're on the right, you, you subscribe to those news organizations, and if you're on the left, you have these. And everything is just constantly, constantly reinforcing what I already think and my tribe. And it's so frustrating especially once you're willing to start trying to look past your tribe, then it's, it's almost like immediately you, you begin to see this everywhere that people are doing this. Yeah, you know, I think on, on a certain level, I agree with you. And, and I agree with you in this sense that uh, it's very hard for us to, to tackle the contradictions at the heart of this country when all of us in our various ways are trying to hold on to what we have. Hmm. And what I mean by that is that it's very difficult for us to talk about race in this country. It's very difficult for us to talk about uh, class in this country. It's very difficult for us to talk about sexism. It's very difficult for us to talk about the planet when at the bottom of it all is the kind of zero-sum game kind of approach. If we're going to address the issue of systemic racial inequality, if we're going to address the issue of patriarchy, if we're going to address the issue of class inequality, if we're going to address the issue that we're devastating the planet, somebody's going to take something from somebody and give it to somebody else. And as long as folk believe that what, in order to remedy racial inequality, I got to take something from some hardworking white people and give it to some undeserving black people, we'll never get it done. If we're going to try to get equal pay between men and women, and what that involves is that you know, some people believe that you're going to take away the advantage of being a man in order to equalize, right, in order to give equal standing to what somebody thinks they're going to lose advantage, right? Or if you're going to understand that the window we have to save the planet for real, right, is, is very limited and people are worried about losing jobs because coal is destroying the planet. And somebody's like, as long as it's, we're approaching it as a zero-sum game and not really 
kind of expose the self-interest at the heart of it, then what's going to happen is people are going to find themselves in these silos, right? And they're going to use slogans to hide what's really motivating. You're going to take away my stuff and give it to somebody else. And I'm busting my ass for some my, my stuff. Or I should have stuff. But I look around in my life and I don't have it. And I look up and I see this black guy at Princeton teaching. And the only reason why he got there, according to the story, is that somebody helped him get to where he is. Right. And so if we if we view it in that way, we're going to always find ourselves right segmented into these silos, falling into excuses to cover. Right. To obscure what's really motivating, what's really motivating us. If we live in a country where the basic assumption, and I call it the value gap in my book, right, my book, Democracy in Black, if we live in a country where the value gap animates everything, and the value gap is the belief that white people matter more than others, and that belief animates our social practices, our economic and political arrangements, and it's a belief that is not about loud racists, it's just a belief about how Privilege ought to be accorded to folk. If we don't tackle that, we're going to find ourselves back here over. And it's, it's, a, it's a damn loop. I mean, that's my long-winded way of answering the question. But you know what I mean? It's like it's, people think you're going to take away my stuff. I, I think I'm a little skeptical of that, though. I'm skeptical that that's too simple of an explanation. So, like, let's talk about Kaepernick kneeling for the anthem for a second. Okay. I got, yeah, we can talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, interestingly, one of my favorite sort of center right thinkers, David Brooks from New York Times, he came down against it, which kind of surprised me. And his argument was basically like, look, we have very few things left in America that all Americans can do together. And kneeling for the national anthem is one of them. Of course, the argument on the left was, look, No one was hurt. Completely peaceful protest. I mean, all he did was kneel instead of stand. And yet it brought this thing to light and he could hold press conferences and talk about it. And a bunch of football fans who would not have read a book about this can become educated. And look, isn't this a perfect example of a peaceful protest? And the other thing that relates to that is back to Jonathan Haidt and his moral foundations. Those on the left who saw Kaepernick and who gave that argument, including myself at the time, Uh, of, look, he didn't hurt anybody. Like, it's this is, like, exactly what protests should look like. We were ignoring certain moral foundations that conservatives hold, like authority. Like, legitimate authority needs to be respected or our society will break down. Patriotism toward the people who make the greatest sacrifices to keep our system going. But But that's disingenuous. I'm sorry to cut you off, Dan, but I think that argument is disingenuous. Okay, why do you say so? I say it's disingenuous because the similar conservatives were silent around Clyde Bundy, right? Claiming patriotism as a way to respond to the demands, the authority of the state. Hmm. Um, In other words, it's a kind of selective patriotism, right? Where patriotism, think about how the Tea Party mobilized challenging authority in the name of patriotism, right? And And they mobilized it by claiming themselves as the true patriots, And so what happens is that there's a kind of selective patriotism, right? And because of who Colin Kaepernick is, he should be thankful he's here, as opposed to exhibiting a kind of critical orientation to the country, 
which could then evidence itself in what was in effect, as you described, a benign act of, of demonstration. So if you kneel, you're bad. If you march quietly, you're bad. If you burn down uh, the quickie mart, you're bad. Right. Why? Because there is a sense in which the underlying assumption is that only a certain grouping of people are genuinely authorized to critique the country in the name of being a patriot. So unless people were as critical of Clive Bundy as they were of Colin Kaepernick, the appeal to authority, the appeal to tradition does it rings hollow to me. And then secondly, historically, the national anthem and the football game were not linked. Right? This is a moment in which the military is trying to brand itself. When I was growing up watching, you know, Terry Bradshaw and, and Jack Lambert and Rocky Blyer and those folks or Archie Manning, because I grew up on the coast of Mississippi watching the New Orleans Saints. Oh, my God, they were so bad. Right. I didn't have to watch planes flying over because it wasn't an integral part of the ritual. Right. So what people read as always already being there, we can actually trace its historical beginnings. Right. And say, look, this is what it was. It hasn't always been that way. Here's a moment in which someone is trying to bring to light a particular policy. And then to claim it as unpatriotic takes me back to the first claim I was making, right? Really, only certain people in these instances when they're critiquing the state are unpatriotic. Or you look at it like this, right? When Republicans during the George W. Bush administration were confronted with the dicey intel around the Iraq war, there was an appeal to patriotism as, as, as a basis uh, for getting behind the Bush administration. Now you have the same people questioning the intel around the Russians, right? And so you kind of say, now, I question the same intel, but for very different reasons. And so you just kind of say, I, it's hard to take the argument consistently when it's not consistently applied, depending upon what person is making the critique. Well, okay. So that's, I would say that's undoubtedly true that the conservative right did not critique the Bundy, you know, taking federal land and and clearly violating the law in the name of patriotism. They did not critique that the same way they critique Kaepernick. That's true. It's also true that the left has not criticized Obama for deporting 3 million illegal immigrants during his tenure. I have. have. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Dr. Glaude. I call him a Melvillian confidence man who was selling the snake oil of hope and change. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm not familiar <laughs> enough with your, your Obama critique, but I think just to say, even you having to raise your hand and say, I did, is evidence of the fact that most people were not doing that on the left. So what I want to do is say, okay, cool. I agree with you. But if that's true on both sides, that just says something about human nature. We're selective in what we want to criticize, right? So then, okay, agreed on that. Then where I want to go is, okay, but how do I have a constructive conversation with someone on the right who wants to criticize Kaepernick kneeling? How can I respect that they care about authority and tradition and loyalty to country? How can I do that? While pointing out these inconsistencies, you know, between Bundy and Kaepernick, for instance. So how do we do that? Like, I'm not going to best you in the theoretical realm here. (laughs) I'm just not. And that's fine. But so just can we can we bring it down to a person to person level? So what do you what would you say to a friend of yours who, you know, you're trying to trying to show that you're also willing to admit the left does this, too. Right. Um, So what's the way forward? 
Well, I mean, the thing is that we got to we got to identify our commitments, right? We got to identify, you know, our commitments. If if we if we're all committed to a more just society, and we can parse what we mean by that. But what does it mean to be committed to a more just society? And then we find instances where people are trying to call attention to the fact that we aren't doing well in particular areas, that we're not particularly just when it comes to policing in this country. And then you try to have a conversation by saying, what does it mean? What does it look like for us to have a more just society? And so at that point, you say, well, there's a celebrity here, right, who's trying to use his platform to call attention to a certain kind of policing. And then what typically has happened in my own work, right, because I wrote a piece on Kaepernick for Time.com and got all kinds of nasty, nasty responses. But at that point, you kind of say, well, oh, it's really not just simply Kaepernick's protest. It's really that they disagree. Uh, Sometimes they really disagree about what he's protesting about. They disagree about differential policing. In some ways, they think, you know, this is when I used to get the arguments. uh, Well, if you're so interested in policing, you should be interested about black on black crime. And you you say, really? That's the statistical category you want to invoke in this moment, right? Yeah, because those are just totally separate issues. That's no issue. And then, you know, you kind of say, well, is there there a category like white on white crime? Because 80 plus percent of white crime takes place white on white. It has something to do with residential segregation. So if we really want to address black on black crime, we should just all live together and then we can pray on each other. I mean, I don't I don't I don't get it. (laughs) But at that moment, what we start doing, we need to start smoking out our commitments and be willing to have the exchange so that we can see what's really at stake here. So we're trying to get to first principles. And it seems like a good way to help get to first principles in a one on one conversation is to admit hypocrisy on both sides. Right. But not to put it, but not to do it in, at the level of equivalence. In some ways, I'm always worried. This is I'm always worried about the equivalence argument, right? So, and I'm gonna put it in this sense, right? It's one thing for in the recent election, people were talking about the fact that folks protested Obama, and now folks are protesting Donald Trump. And I said, well, you know, to protest for single payer or universal health care. Uh, is the same thing as protesting because you believe he's a Muslim. And so part of what I wanted to want to do when we make these equivalences is begin to look at the content of the actual claims that are being made so that we could give get a better sense of the world that's being presupposed, that's driving the claims. Because if it's the case that somebody's making an argument uh, for a world in which I'm not free, or women are subordinated, right? Or working people have to work 40 to 60 hours a week and can't make ends meet, right? Where people can't afford college. They're going to go broke because they get sick, right? And then you want me to equate that vision with my... No, 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 no. We're going to have an argument because our very understandings of what constitutes a just world, right, is very different. You know, so I want to be very, very careful about equivalencies, because sometimes they, they allow people who I think hold noxious views, right, to have room in ways that I'm not comfortable with. But I have to be very careful because then you don't want to censor people, right? You know, you don't want to be the one, the arbiter to say that view is acceptable, that one isn't. But I just want to be very careful with equivalences, if that makes sense then. So I do understand that 
desire to stay away from equivalence. I also don't know if like too much humility when it comes to argumentation from left to right or right to left, like ever really hurt anybody. No, 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 you're right. <laughs> and, and also I think another thing that's helpful to remember here is like, you know, I saw this segment on Vice of all places, you know, Vice Bastion of Liberal Media about, I think it was sheep farmers in like New Mexico or Nevada or whatever, like a particular kind of farmer. And they're running into these problems with increased sort of government regulation. And they're not big factory farms. It's not Monsanto. It's just an issue that this class of people is really coming up against a problem. And and you could argue that whoever has been running these departments or whatever that, that deal with these laws have not had these people's best interests at heart or, or have failed them in some way. If that person votes for Trump, that person is not voting for stop and frisk. They, they just aren't, right? So it's also good to remember huge coalitions. You know, political parties are giant coalitions that each encompass roughly half of the country and people are voting for all kinds of different reasons. Right. No, I agree with that. I think, you know, we have to be nuanced, right? And, you know, there's, I think it's an apocryphal story of a poster. It might've been in Western Pennsylvania or in Iowa or somewhere during 2007, went to the neighborhood, knocked on the door and they asked a white working class family, who are you going to vote for? And they said, we're voting for the nigger. You That's see? insane. But but you see what I mean, right? So that you can make the choice, right? And race can still be operative, even though there are all sorts of other things motivating. Right? It can, but you can't. It doesn't necessarily have to be. But it, 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 So part of what I'm saying is that what happens when people want to analyze what, because uh, Trump ran a bigoted campaign, and it was bigoted in so many different ways, from the wall to the Muslims to the description of African-Americans to the disabled. I mean, he ran a bigoted campaign. And so folks had to segment that from the claims of making America great again and what that meant in its details for them in their, in their actual lives. Mm-hmm. So I think, it's, it's, I think you're right to say that, you know, that worker in middle America, white worker in middle America who lost their, their manufacturing job uh, and is, can't afford to send the kids to college and, and everything that they dreamed about is not happening and and these limousine liberals are running around here talking about this and that and this and that, that you can't reduce it to, to, to race. But race has to be part of the analysis, right? Yeah. So I, I, I use this example about the pollster. It's like George Wallace. You know, before George Wallace became George Wallace, he was one of the most liberal politicians in Alabama. And when he lost the governorship the first time to John Patterson, he said, I will not be out niggered again. That's what he said. Or go back to the 19th, early 20th century with Tom Watson. Tom Watson was with his rifle defending black farmers in Georgia and then realized that in order for white farmers to advance, that they would have to just simply disenfranchise black farmers. This is the same guy who risked his life for those black farmers, and he became one of the most virulent racists in the history of the country. So part of what we have to do is to kind of be sophisticated and nuanced and honest in our assessment and understand how these factors are nested. Right? There could very well be the case that the sheep farmer who, got, who has been done in has an understanding of whiteness that is still manifesting itself, evidencing itself in how they imagine the United States. Maybe not. But what we do know is that race mattered in this election. We can just look at the exit poll data. It mattered in this election. 
And when people talk about the white working class or middle America, that's all racialized. Because the question I'm asking everyone is that the hell that the white working class is catching, black working class people, brown working class people are catching the same kind of hell, if not worse. So there are people in New York City making less money in New York City than people in rural Indiana. Both of them busting their behinds. So what does it mean in that moment to talk about the white working class? The question that you have to ask yourself in that moment is what is the adjective doing? Well, I think, you know, most people who are talking about the white working class are talking about it in the context of, you know, political blocks, voting blocks or whatever, which is they're just speaking about it empirically, which is fine. Uh, it's not good to identify yourself as white working class or black working class for that matter. It's probably just not good to identify yourself as your race or oh, even your class. You're revealing, you're revealing your leftist politics. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but I'm also criticizing, I'm criticizing the identity politics of the left as well. And just, I can put it this way to my mind to describe a claim about equal pay for women as identity politics is wrong. To describe arguments that black men in particular and black women are subject disproportionately to state violence by the police as identity politics is wrong. Part of what it means to engage in this justice work right, involves understanding uh, that different groups experience differential treatment in ways that we have to describe Yes. If we're going to address them. Yes. Okay. That's all right. So I'm (laughs) music to my ears. It is not identity politics to say, here is the data. It is identity politics to say, oh, look at all these white supremacists who voted for Trump. That is where it's different because then we're not talking about data anymore. We're just name calling. And so what I want... Unless you're talking about white nationalists. Well, yeah. I mean, there, there are a few actual avowed white supremacists who, you know, did vote for him and, you know, post on websites and say that that's... But I'm saying you can't... It's when you start grouping, you know, so we can say this policy has racist outcomes. Great. On board. But we can't say all the people who voted for this governor who enacted this policy are racists. That's where it gets into identity politics. Only if you understand racism in this very narrow way, in this very juridical way of understanding racism as intent. I know. I, so we did this. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, you know, I, we did this distinction with, with Drew Hart recently. And, you know, there's sort of like thin racism, which is just like I'm personally racist. I personally think that other people don't. And then there's institutional racism and systemic racism. And I, I mean, I guess it's maybe helpful to say anyone who voted for politician X who passed Bill Y that had racist implications is institutionally racist. I don't. I don't know if that's really helpful. I I think it's better to say, hey, person, hey, human being who has a diverse set of values and concerns, here is what actually happened with this thing. You probably didn't intend it, but this is the fact. And wouldn't it be a bummer if you were on the other side of this as well? And can't I appeal to the good in you? 
to mutually recognize that this is not, maybe this isn't what you thought would happen. You intended this other thing that you think would be good for society, or maybe you were just being selfish by your money or your resources and you were worried, but here's what actually happened. Here's how we can show it. And can we mutually agree upon a more just option here? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I mean, the great sociologist W.B. Du Bois took himself in the early phases of his career to address the irrationality of racist practices by conducting the Atlanta University studies where he was going to disclose all of the facts of black life. And once he disclosed the facts of black life, then he could present the case that racism was irrational. Oh shit. I know where this is going. <laughs> and then he wound up, <laughs> then he wound up looking at the knuckles of Sam Hose in a convenience store saying, this is not about rational argument. That aside, let me, let me put it, come at it from a different way. I talk about the value gap, and the value gap is we talk about the achievement gap, the empathy gap, the wealth gap, but there's a value gap, and the value gap is the belief that white people matter more. And that belief has animated our social practices, our political arrangements, and our economic realities since the formation of the country. And it is not a belief that has to be articulated by loud racists, right? So you don't have to run around with swastikas on your, on your chest or burning crosses in someone's yard, right? But if you look at the way in which the value gap, just let's look at it in the way in which it organizes our actual space. You learn the value gap just simply by driving around Seattle, right? Just by driving around Seattle, you learn the value gap by simply going to work, going to your school, right? I do it. My students do it. You do it. We're learning the value gap in the very ways in which we navigate. Clarissa Hayward talks about this, how Americans make race. And we make it spatially oftentimes. And so the example I give to my students when I talk about this is I'm not a climate change denier. I believe the world is getting warmer. In fact, this is the warmest it has ever been on record. But if you look at my life, you look at my car, Look at my house. You look at the choices I'm making daily. I act and behave as if the world is not sick. And so part of what we have to do is to begin to understand how race works, that it's not just simply about intention, right? Just my dad couldn't vote in Mississippi. Detroit looks the way it looks because of a history of explicit racism. That history is literally written on the landscape. It's built into the policies, right? And so it reproduces sensibilities, right? A certain kind of uh, way of seeing and being in the world that isn't reducible to people being bad people, right? But it's still doing work. And so part of what we have to do is to say race was in fact operative, right? In the election of Donald Trump along with a whole host of other things. Let's drill down so we can understand it better. But instead of us doing that, what we want to do is engage in the easy work of dismissing all the Trump voters as racist in the, in the simple sense of what we mean by that, mm-hmm. right? Segmenting it off as simply as a working class revolt when the data doesn't suggest that either, right? right? And then we don't understand the hell that the position that we find ourselves in. You see what I mean? That's my long-winded way of (laughs) making the point. Oh, man. So think about it. My students at Princeton, right, that walk down Nassau Street or Prospect Street, 
and experience Princeton in all of his glory, the Southern Ivy, an elite Ivy space, right? Prospect Street is where all of the eating houses are, socialized into privilege. That's all they have to do is walk down to the community park. And then they experience, right, the history of Princeton, right? The slaves who were manumitted from Southern elites who brought this, who sent their children up here. They see where the people who clean up their vomit live, right? They get an experience, right, of how racial stratification evidences itself in the society by just simply navigating space. And they're not being loud racist, but they're conceding to the arrangements every time they move about. Are you saying that anyone, uh, maybe I'm just misunderstanding you here, any student who goes to Princeton and pays their tuition, assuming they didn't get a scholarship, and just kind of walks around and sees this, because I was kind of thinking you were saying the opposite, which is like you could have a black student at Princeton going, oh man, look at, like this is, it's cool that that's not the case anymore, this is progress, but a white student... I guess no, I'm just not. Can you can you break us, that down? All of us. What I'm saying is that we learn race in the built environment. Okay. We learn the value gap by navigating built space. We learn the value gap by going into stratified labor markets. We learn the value gap right in the very spaces we live. Seventy five percent of of white social networks and black social networks are all white and all black. Right. So we learn race right in our daily living. Right? And it's not just simply reducible to bad actors. But when we look at our daily living, when we see right, where people are living, where people are working, who's picking up our garbage, I want to live in a safe neighborhood. We know what that means. I want my children to go to a good school. We know sociologists have shown that that, that is a proxy for how many black and brown people go to that school. Children go to that school. Right? And so part of this has to do with the choices we're making daily a kind of, my colleague Imani Perry says, it's a cultural practice of inequality that's not reducible to intention, but involves the way in which you and I are choosing, and I include black people, you and I are choosing daily and how our choices reproduce racial inequality in the country. It's not just simply about bad people running around yelling the N-word. Okay, well, there, we could talk for three more hours about this. Um, this has been great. Oh, thanks, man. And thank you for like letting me just... I mean, this is like, you know, I've gotten more confident doing this show, but I will admit that I was a little trepidatious about like, oh, I'm just going to be a 33-year-old white kid grilling this, Prince, this black Princeton professor on like trying to pull him center of left and... <laughs> So you've been, I mean, thank you for putting up with that and, and engaging with it. Um, I don't know if my confidence is higher or lower after, <laughs> after, after the conversations. But anyway, one last question. So I was, sure. I was thinking about this this morning, actually, before, before we got on Skype. And, you know, I was thinking, why is religion important when it comes to these complicated political questions? And the answer that I kind of came up with as a super abstract philosophy major kind of guy, and, and I want to hear... I feel like your answer is going to be different. So that's why I wanted to, I'm going to say mine and I want to hear yours. So the reason that I would say uh, religion is important is because religious convictions give us kind of like a built-in control against just believing whatever um, our society happens to believe in the moment. They give us kind of like 
a yardstick that doesn't change much over time, at least not nearly as much as other societal norms or political norms do. And so, you know, for instance, to to be committed to um, Jesus's teaching that, you know, you must care for the least of these or love your neighbor as yourself. These kind of things like they're just so perennially applicable and kind of can serve as like a, a control, I guess. But you're coming from, you know, the tradition of black civil rights movement and how that relates to religion in America. And so I wanted to ask you, and I feel like I'm going to get a different answer. Why is religion important in these conversations? Well, they're important for a number of reasons. Uh, one, I think, is that oftentimes those who have religious commitments Right, those commitments orient them to the world in particular sorts of ways. Right, it determines what they see as as goods. Right, what they take to be that which they should be pursuing in the name of their understanding of the good. So there's a kind of moral and ethical baseline that it provides, and that echoes your point a bit. But I think there's another dimension why religion is so important because oftentimes religion closes us off from others. Those very commitments, right, blinds us to seeing, right, others in particular sorts of ways because those traditions are contested. So somebody might be emphasizing Matthew 25, right? Somebody else might be emphasizing something much more conservative or constraining, right? Well, we're born again. Being born again establishes one. Or America is the new Israel or whatever. Yeah. So, So we understand these traditions to be contested. And the extreme version of that, uh, is what Richard Rorty described as religion as a conversation stopper. So oftentimes the commitments can gum up the work of de- democratic delimera- deliberation because everything has already been settled, right, in some way. So religion is important because it often anchors us in the worlds that we inhabit. And if we don't take seriously those commitments as we engage our fellows, as we engage with each other, if we dismiss them out of hand or we accord them superordinate status without any interrogation, right, we will often, I think, find ourselves in places that are really ugly, that are really ugly. So my thinking is if we find ourselves in these religious communities, if we inhabit them, they are important to us, and we are on the left, we need to make the arguments for the world that we want, right, in light of the languages that our religious traditions give us, right? So it's, it's, it's really important to understand churches, mosques, synagogues, temples, right? Those are spaces where everyday ordinary people are working out how they're going to live, how they're going to imagine their lives. And to think about them apart from that is to, is to rob them of something very, very significant, and to think that it's going to be easy to navigate those commitments, right, is to set yourself up for failure, too. Right? It gives us a sense of the messiness of democratic deliberation. But to have faith in it, to bank your all on it, right, to my mind, is, is, is at the heart of what a genuinely just society looks like, will look like. Thank you very much, Professor Glaude. And that cold, man, you had a cold. I do. No, it's it's a flu, man. I'm I'm getting over it. And Dayquil was the today's episode unofficially sponsored by Dayquil. <laughs> um, I, I guess, yeah, man. There's. I just want to talk for another month. Maybe I got to come. Maybe I got to come study at Princeton. All right.
Well, we'll do it at some point. Okay. Thank you, Professor. And uh, you have a good day. Oh, also, before we go, where can people find you? Uh, please talk about your books. Sure. My latest book is actually just coming out, coming out in the paperback edition. It's entitled Democracy in Black, How Race Still Enslaves the American Soul. Uh, I've written a couple of other books, one on uh, the Exodus story, uh, Exodus, Religion, Race, and Nation in Early 19th Century Black America, and a book on American pragmatism uh, uh, in a shade of blue, uh, pragmatism in the politics of race in the United States, um, or race in America. You can catch me on Twitter, at ESGlaude. And I got a really nice Twitter following, so join me on Twitter. And you can hear, you can you can watch me rant uh, left of center. <laughs> yeah, this was like me like trying to get you to come more center, and I think mostly failing, but really enjoying the process. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see how I survive as the president of the AAR. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. All right, man. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I appreciate you. Take care. Wow, that was good. I think there's still plenty about which he and I disagree, but also I think I was a little out of my league there, in a good way. So I don't really know what to think about that. But if you dug it, please share this with a couple friends who might also like it. That's how we spread the word here. Next week, Judd King, who has a PhD in Islamic studies and who spent a bunch of time in the Middle East, we're going to be doing a kind of a primer on Islam, violence, Muslim Americans, etc. So look forward to that. So much great stuff in there. It's a longer episode, packed full of goodness. So thank you guys for your support. You can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. And please join the Facebook discussion group for Depolarize. And we got a lot of good conversation going on there every week, most days. And we'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.